0: Guys, come on down. I thought we could do something a little uh, different this evening, and uh, we've been obviously working our way uh, through Genesis. We've been doing a little overview of the book of Genesis, and we've looked at some of the backgrounds, uh, the background of Genesis, and the themes of Genesis, and one of my goals as we go through each of these books of the Bible is just to give you kind of a sense of what the book is about, and then how you can benefit from it as you have devotions. Hey, Bailey, I'm glad you came. I didn't notice that you came. That's awesome. There's some, and McKenna's here too somewhere, right? Awesome. Nice to have some of my family here. That's cool. But, uh, and we're going to work our way a little bit through uh, Genesis 12 through 50 uh, in the weeks to come, but it's hard for me to move past Genesis 1 and 2 uh, because this is such a unique part of the Bible since we're getting to look at the creation of the world and the way God designed things to be and it provides us an opportunity to see uh, how things were supposed to work before they were broken. And I thought we could uh, this evening talk a little bit about marriage, marriage before it was broken. So that's our our subject, God's design for marriage from Genesis chapters uh, 1 and 2. And so even though technically on Wednesday evenings we've been doing this Bible overview, v- view. so this doesn't really fit if this were like a class in university. Um, we wouldn't take the time to do this, but I'm happy we're not a class in university. We're in a church, so we can take the time to look at this. First of all, uh, because Genesis 1 and 2 does speak about marriage, um, as someone has said, the history of the human race begins with a wedding at the very beginning of the Bible, one of the first things God talks about is how marriage is supposed to work. And so in chapter one, it's like God gives us a zoomed out uh, version of the creation of the world, which climaxes in uh, God's creation of man for the Sabbath. And in chapter two, he zooms in to look at one day in creation, the day he created man and woman, and that chapter climaxes in their marriage. So the climax of chapter one is the Sabbath, and the climax of chapter two is marriage. So you could um, obviously see that this is a, a really important relationship. And it's important we understand what God says about marriage because there's a lot of confusion. I was uh, reading a book on marriage recently, and the opening line in the first chapter was, it turns out that the first thing we should look for in a marriage is someone of the opposite sex. And I thought, that's controversial now. that, that That's... Uh, it's amazing that that's a controversial statement. You uh, have to start that way because our culture is so confused about marriage, they don't even know many of the basics. And worse, there's a lot of pressure to throw out basic biblical teaching. And that's a problem. And I think one of the reasons that's a problem is because of Genesis 1 and 2. God, God puts this at the beginning for a reason. And so it's, it's not everything there is to the Christian life and even to the Bible, obviously, how to have a good marriage or, or, or just even marriage. The Bible's about a lot more than that. But marriage and family is an important part of the way God's working in the world right now. And so if we get this wrong, we get a lot wrong. And so I wanna look at Genesis one and two and make a number of observations that I think will help us understand marriage and how God designed marriage to work. And um, we're gonna begin at the beginning. And the first thing that we see about marriage in Genesis 1 and 2, is that the Bible starts with how things are and then moves on to how things should be, which is maybe a funny way of putting it. But the most famous verse in Genesis 1 and 2 on marriage is probably verse 24, where Moses says, of chapter 2, where Moses says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And I want you just to think about that word therefore for a minute, because it's almost like Moses has been showing us this video of God's creation of the world, and then he stops the video, and he says, let me explain the implications of this. Therefore, in light of these facts, this is how marriages should work. Therefore, because of how God created things to be. In other words, there's a way God created the world. There's a a way God created man and woman there's a way God created marriage and the instructions given in the Bible are designed to help you live according to that pattern, which is why what I think Moses is doing because he writes Genesis 2:24 after the fall, obviously. So this is like a postscript that Moses writes about marriage in a broken world. And he saw a lot of brokenness in his culture. Israel was coming out of Egypt, And Egypt was very confused about marriage. And what he's doing is looking back at the creation of the world and saying, this is how God made marriage. This is how God made man and woman. Therefore, this is how you need to live. So in other words, he's not saying, look, I'm a Jew, and I live at a certain time in history, and this is my culture, and this is how I think marriage should work. When he talks about marriage, instead he's going way back before there were Jews in the world, before thousands and thousands of years before he was even born. So Moses was further removed from the creation of the world than we are from Moses. And he looks at how God created things to be. God, he he is the one who created marriage, and he created it in a certain way, which means that when we talk about marriage, we're talking about something that is. We're not talking about something that we created. We're We're not talking about something that, you know, a few men thousands and thousands of years ago got together and said you know i think this is how it should work we're talking about something that god created that works a certain way so uh, there's this uh, book on marriage by a guy named christopher ash and he's he's making an argument in this book and he makes um two important comments towards the beginning of the book that are important for understanding his argument and i think understanding biblical teaching on marriage he says one Creation order is, is moral, not just material. And so we look at Genesis 1, we read Genesis 1, and we see God is bringing order to the world, which means there's a, a structure to how God created the world, and there's a purpose. And because God's ordered the world a certain way, we can study it. This is why science can be effective, right? Right? If the physical universe was completely chaotic, it would be pointless to study because everything would be random all the time and you would never be able to discover any patterns, but you can. And the thing is that's, that's not just true of the physical, biological, and material world, but that's also true of the moral world and the way that God designed us to function as humans. And so a scientist, he doesn't get to make up the laws of gravity or whatever. And in a similar way, the writers of the Bible aren't making up marriage or how we as humans function, but they're looking at how God created us to be, and so if you ever get a chance to read the book of Proverbs, that's what's going on in Proverbs. The writer of Proverbs is saying wisdom was at God's side. It's like a picture of wisdom as being at God's side as he created the world, and so it's like God is looking at wisdom and putting wisdom into this world, that there's a way things are supposed to to work, built in. And in the book of Proverbs, the writer's looking at God's word and he's looking at the world and he's revealing some of that wisdom to us. And so is Genesis one and two. There's a design for marriage that's revealed here. And this is the second part of this Christopher Ashe's argument. He says, marriage is an institution given by God, not a project fashioned by culture, which uh, is why when you look at Genesis 2.18, who's the one taking the initiative? It says, uh, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So that's not Adam looking at his situation and then coming to God with a plan. That's God looking at the way things are and saying, No, I'm going to make a plan. And then you look down at verses 20 and 21, and Adam can't find a helper suitable for him. So what happens? So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to man. And you see there, the initiative is all God's. And uh, this is really important because we as humans, we like to think of ourselves as autonomous. And so maybe the picture we have in our minds when it comes to marriage is of it being something that we decided or something that we figured out. And if it was something we decided or something we figured out, then of course we can change it. But if it's not, then we need to submit to what the Bible teaches about it. And I think the fact that we open our Bibles and we look at Genesis 1 and 2 and we see it talking about marriage tells us that marriage is not something that man invented and it's not something that we can change really any more than we can change the law of gravity. I mean, you can try to act like it doesn't exist but you're being kind of delusional. In fact, that's if you look at Proverbs again, you'll find that's the argument he makes about sexual purity in marriage. He doesn't in Proverbs when he talks about the way sex is supposed to work in marriage, he doesn't just say it's right. He says if you ignore this instruction and you go your own way, you're being stupid. He says drink water from your own sister and flowing water from your own well, should your springs be scattered abroad streams of water in the streets. So he's like, you know, this guy has a well at home where he could get fresh water, but instead you see him on the street and he's drinking from a puddle there. That guy's not just, he's not just doing something wrong, he's doing something stupid. Like he has, this is the way it should work. Or he says, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? So you see a guy pick up, you know, logs that are on fire and starts carrying carrying them somewhere. You don't say, oh, you are so evil, you, you, you say, men, don't you know how things work? And of course, you know, breaking the commands of scripture is evil, but also the point is because God designed the world to work a certain way, it's also dumb, it's also, it's also stupid. There's a, there's a design, there's an order, there's a blueprint for how this is supposed to work, that's First. God planned marriage. The blueprint comes from God, not us. Adam didn't come to God with a plan for marriage. It's God who was behind this. And of course, we know now we're living in a broken world, and so there are challenges because we're looking at a world before there was sin here in Genesis 1 and 2. We have to be careful now because the world that we live in is very filled with, it's definitely filled with sin, and so, Even as we talk about what we're going to talk about as we look at Genesis 1 and 2, we have to be careful that we don't take what God says and use it to say what we want it to say. Um, Because we're sinners, and that's a temptation, especially when it comes to marriage. We might be uh, tempted to take our culture's ideas and speak them with the same authority as God's, and that's not going to be helpful. And that's something people sometimes say against the Christian view of marriage they're like, you're trying to impose your opinions on us. And that's not really fair because we don't want to do that. And, uh, and the reality is they end up doing that usually, right? <laughs> that's what's ironic. They force their opinions on us. But we just want to say and believe what the scripture says about marriage. Not because we like it better than another view necessarily, um, but because we're not independent creatures who get to make this up. We, uh, first, our first confession as Christians is Jesus is Lord. Um, And so our first responsibility is to submit to what he says. So there's a design. Uh, Marriage is something that you can say marriage is something. It is something. And what it is is what God says it is. So what can we learn about the design of marriage? Before we get to Genesis 2, and because that's really where all the, the meat of, of what the instruction is, we need to look at Genesis 1, because Genesis 1 helps us understand why marriage exists. So God has a purpose for marriage. And I know if you guys are young and you know, you're like, I'm a kid and I came to a class on marriage. Wow, that's really exciting. But... You'll talk to a lot of grown-ups. You'll find out later. And you could ask them, why are you married? And sometimes grown-ups don't know why marriage exists. And so if you're young and you know why there's a marriage, you're like beyond a lot of grown-ups, actually. And knowing why something is, helps you, is is, is essential for being able to do it well. Sometimes when we would talk about marriage, we would start with what marriage is or how to have a good marriage, but those questions are better answered once you understand the purpose of marriage. Um, And again, not your purpose for marriage, but God's purpose. Why did God design this relationship? What did he intend this kind of relationship to do that's different than other relationships? And that seems kind of like obvious that you should ask that question because you have to know something's purpose to use it well. So like, if you have a toothbrush and you figured out a way to use it to hammer a nail, we're not really impressed by that use of the toothbrush or at least we don't say, hey, you're using the toothbrush to the maximum because that's a tool for your teeth. You're using the toothbrush to do something it wasn't intended to do and you might be doing it well. You might be really good at hammering a nail with a toothbrush, but there's actually a better tool for that purpose And you should use that tool, not the toothbrush. And so if we're gonna know what to do with marriage and how to do marriage well, we need to know why marriage exists. It's like someone who's really great at kicking a ball and says he's playing basketball. You would be like, yes, you're great at kicking a ball, but that's not the game of basketball. And so you might be good at certain things in your version of your idea of marriage but that, if, that's, if, if, you're not, if you don't understand the purpose of marriage, it doesn't necessarily mean that your marriage is really functioning as it should. Um, and so we need to think about why marriage exists, and yet um, that's not always an easy question for believers to, to answer. Um, and what happens is we usually start with very general answers. And then we uh, go to specific answers that are not the primary answer. So generally, we might say, well, why do I get married? Uh, Marriage is for the glory of God, because we know that's like the right answer for everything. And that's good, but you have to ask, how was marriage designed to bring glory to God specifically? What is it about this relationship that enables you to bring glory to God? Or we might get more specific, and we might think about what marriage does. So we might say, well, marriage is to keep me from being lonely. Or we might say, marriage is good for society. Or we might say, well, marriage is where you can have kids, which are maybe all good purposes, but the problem is they're too small. It's like saying the purpose of a computer is to type. You're like, well, kind of. you you, You type on a computer, but you can't really say the purpose of a computer is to type. There's more to it. And this is where it helps to begin by looking at the story of scripture, because marriage is part of something bigger that God's doing. And so to understand marriage, you have to ask, how does the marriage relationship fit into the story that God's telling? And to answer that, you have to start in Genesis 1, verse 26, where he talks about the creation of man. So look at this verse, Genesis 1:26, and we've looked at it before, but. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. (laughs) And you'll hear that phrase again as we read through Genesis. It's a funny little phrase, but it's there again. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over every living thing that moves on the earth." And we've talked about this before, because it's one of the most important passages in scripture, because it tells us so much about what it means to be human. You know, one time I remember um, we were in Africa, and we were with all these kids, and I asked, what's the difference between a human and a dog? And that was a hard question for them to answer. Um, I remember another time even here, uh, we were playing a game and somebody, uh, oh man, this is gonna be a hard one to explain because it's not in my notes, but they had, uh, they're playing this game where you had this phrase on the back of your shirt and, uh, you had to, you didn't know what that phrase said and you're trying to ask other people questions to figure out what was on the back of your shirt. This is way too long of illustration for what it's going to end up beans but I'm in the middle of it now so I don't know what to do but and uh, and way too confusing but the the phrase on the back of this shirt was animal and so somebody asked another person am I one of these and the other person said yeah and I was like no Um, and they're like yeah and you know you can understand why we had that conversation because we are like animals in a certain way that we're both created but unlike everything else we're created in god's image and so there's going to be similarities between us and animals but also differences and one of the differences is the fact that we're given this unique privilege of being created in god's image and that's a phrase that uh tells us we are uh, we really are unique We have uh, extreme privilege, and we also have a big responsibility as humans. If you look at the story God's telling, as he explains what it means to be made in God's image, he tells us that it means that we have a unique calling to have dominion over the rest of creation. And uh, that's not just man as male either, because you see in verse 28 or verse uh, 27, It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, which tells us, one, there's a difference between man and woman. There there are two sexes, male and female. And actually, this is the only distinction Genesis brings up between humans. So it doesn't talk about their races. It doesn't say Chinese and Caucasian, he created them. It just says they were created male and female. It's either one or the other. This is the only distinction. And then there's also a similarity in that it's not just men who are made in the image of God and given this task. We all are. As men and women, we have this relationship with God. We have this responsibility to God. We're made in his image. We represent him. And we have this relationship with creation, this role to play, where we exercise a dominion and subdue it. That's what humans do, actually. That's why where you go anywhere on the planet and humans are exercising dominion and trying to bring order to this world because that's part of what it means to be a human. That's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. And in the middle of that, God says, be fruitful and multiply. And this being fruitful, that's verse 28, and multiplying is part of how we accomplish the task God gave us. If you look at the second part of the verse, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. And obviously, it's also a way God designed us to do us good, if you look at the first part of the verse. And God blessed them, and God said, be fruitful and multiply. So this call to be fruitful and multiply and exercise dominion is a blessing and a command, really. And so how does that help us understand the purpose of marriage? Well, go to Genesis chapter 2. I think maybe Genesis 2 takes that, what I just told you, And explains it a little more deeply. And I wanted to just look at that passage in Genesis 1. Because usually when we talk about marriage in Genesis 1 and 2. We just talk about Genesis 2. And we almost read it forgetting what we read in Genesis 1. And I don't want to do that this time. And that's why I started the way I did. Because after giving us this big picture view of creation. In Genesis 2 now we look more closely at the creation of man. And we find God forming him from the dust of the ground, verse 7, and breathing the breath of life into him. And then verse 8, God making this garden where man could serve and enjoy him. And then in verse 18, we read, then the Lord God said, now this is going to, should be very shocking, it is not good that man should be alone. And we have to ask, what is not good about the man being alone? What is not good about the man being alone? Because a lot of times, the way we would answer that is by saying, well, man was lonely. Right now, uh, when people think about physical intimacy in marriage, they think this is the primary thing they think about. And a lot of what I'm going to say comes from this Christopher Ash. But he asks whether or not the primary problem that God was intending to solve through marriage was loneliness. Is that what's going on? And if you read his book, I think he says it too strongly because he says, no, marriage is not God's primary answer to the problem of loneliness. And it is an answer, of course, because it's called a covenant of companionship in the Bible. And if you look at Song of Songs, there's a lot of relational intimacy and delight. So I think you'd say too much if you you said that marriage wasn't for companionship. But it's still a good question whether that's the primary focus here in Genesis 2 or if that's where you should start when you talk about the primary purpose of marriage. First of all, because if the reason it wasn't good for man to be alone was primarily the problem of man being lonely, God could have solved that problem by creating another man for friendship. And second, because looking at the rest of this verse, we see that it's not really loneliness that's the primary issue, because what does God say? He says, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And so the reason it's not good is because man needs a helper. And what does he need help with? That's the question. And if we look at the verses just before this one, what do we see? We see that God's talked about the work that he's called man to do. Moses says, um, verse 16, although that's the command, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And then the Lord God commanded man. And so it makes sense for us to think, okay, that's verse 15 and 16. Now I'm reading verse 18. It would make sense to think this statement about it not being good for man to be alone and needing a helper has something to do with that, right? And the kind of help he needs to fulfill his purpose must be different than just another man could give him. And since we've just read Genesis 1, we kind of already know, right? Because what do we see happening? God creates man in his image, places him in the garden, gives him this responsibility to serve and keep the garden, and to bring the rest of the earth into submission, to act as his representative. And I think probably he means by that to make the rest of the earth like the Garden of Eden, expand the borders of the Garden of Eden, and fill the earth with his glory. But how's he going to do that? One big way he's going to do that is by being fruitful and multiplying and sending out other little images of God across the planet And to accomplish that, he needs a helper and not just another person like him, but someone who's like him but different. And so God creates woman and marriage. And I went through all that to say that there's a purpose to the marriage relationship from the beginning that's bigger than just sexual intimacy or having kids and ending there. Or like I'm so lonely and I need someone close to me. Because while marriage can be a means for that, we look at Genesis 1 and 2 and we see the purpose is bigger than that. What's the purpose? As someone has described it, it's a specific kind of outward-looking partnership in the service of God and the world. And seeing it like that is really important. It's important for singles to understand. So even if people aren't married, this is important for them to understand about marriage. Because I think sometimes as a single person, you're lonely and you think that marriage is the the solution to that. And I don't wanna minimize the joy of friendship in marriage. There are some special joys there for sure. But you know, if you're lonely, most of the time when the Bible talks about the answer to that question, it's not telling you to get married. It's most of the time when the Bible talks about the problems connected to loneliness, the solution is friendship and fellowship in the church. And families, of course, are a part of God's design for that, a great part. But the reason for marriage and physical intimacy is even a little bigger than that. Christopher Ashe says, There's a garden to be tended, a world to be stewarded, and marriage is instituted with the purpose of contributing to that task and vision of human dominion over the created order. Marriage is given to enable humankind to exercise responsible dominion over God's world, a dominion only entered into in Christ. And so there's a mission to marriage built into why it exists. Before the fall, there was a job for Adam to do that he needed the help specifically of Eve to accomplish. He could do that job better with her for a lot of reasons than just another man. And after the fall, that purpose is still there, only there's a lot more obstacles now. But you have to think about marriage starting there. Marriage is for the service of God. And uh, that's why whenever somebody comes for premarital counseling, I ask them, How do you glorify God better together than you do by yourself? Because if you don't glorify God better together, then there's no reason for you to get married because this is why marriage exists. (laughs) And these other things that we talk about come under that. We enjoy friendship and marriage to help us glorify God better and as a way to glorify God. We contribute to stable society as a means of serving God. We have children as a way to make disciples and serve God. We care for children that are not our own as a way of making disciples. But marriage is for service to God. And and Paul's going to, in Ephesians later, he's going to shine light on how that happens in a Christian marriage. And that gets exciting. But knowing this is important for singles and not just singles. Because no matter how long you've been married, you need to know why you're married. (laughs) That's why Genesis begins the way it does, where it does. Genesis 1 and 2 show us how God designed marriage, beginning with a glimpse of the purpose of marriage. And you want to make sure that you're not settling for a sub-purpose as your main purpose. So in Africa, um, a lot of times when I would ask this question, why are you married? The answer was more, um, yeah, it was more about having kids. Or sometimes it would be because I'm 30 years old, I, that's the time to get married. Or a lot of times for guys, it could come down to, um, well, I'm working and I need someone to take care of the house. And they would sometimes be very straight up about that. And that's not necessarily bad, but it's definitely not big enough, right? (laughs) And in America, I think the answer for a lot of people stops with ourselves and our happiness. And so you ask people, why are you getting married? Well, she makes me happy. And they don't even think to question that. It's a completely inward focus. You're like, why are you getting married? We like each other. We have a good friendship, whatever. And behind that is this person makes me happy. I make them happy. And that's important, of course. But what I'm saying is you look back at God's design for marriage. It was, something, it was for something bigger than just us liking each other and having a good friendship. If the ultimate goal of marriage is just us liking each other, that goal is too small. Marriage is about serving God, and this is one of the tricks when people are having marriage problems, because most people who are having marriage problems come, and they're thinking what? They're thinking, well, if the reason we're married is because we liked each other, that's why we got married, and they, have a, they had a good, if, if the reason why people get married is to have a good friendship, then they're probably wanting help because they don't like each other anymore, and they don't have a good friendship. So Jack and Jill come, and they're like, help me, help me. Why? Because we're not close anymore, and we're not happy. And so their primary concern when they come for counseling is, can you help us be close, and can you help us be happy again? And you're like, yeah, I want you to be close, and I want you to be happy, but there's a problem if that is your primary, your main, your single motivation. And one problem with making happiness or closeness The ultimate goal is that as long as people are happy in marriage, then they're like, well, we've got a great marriage. Why do you have a great marriage? Well, we're happy. Well, no, you can have a happy marriage and it not be a great marriage because your marriage is not fulfilling the ultimate purpose of marriage because marriage is about more than just the two of you being happy. You can do a lot of things wrong in marriage and be happy, and that's not a God-glorifying marriage. Another problem with saying the main thing I want for marriage is that I'm happy or you're happy or that we're close, is that then you're usually not going to be that happy or close. Because if you focus primarily on your happiness, that's not how you usually become happy. Or focusing primarily on being friends is not usually how you have a good friendship. That's not usually how closeness or friendship works. C.S. Lewis, he writes this, he says, friendship arises when two or more discover that they have in common some insight or interest. As one man said, do you love me means do you see the same truth or at least do you care about the same truth? The man who agrees with us that some question little regarded by others is of great importance can be our friend. That's why those pathetic people who simply want friends can never make any. The very condition of having friends is that we should want something beside friends. Where the truthful answer to the question, do you see the same truth, would be I don't care about the truth, I only want you to be my friend, no friendship can arise. Friendship must be about something, even if it were only enthusiasm for dominoes or white mice. Those who have nothing can share nothing, those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. And then finally, if the primary thing that's motivating you to work on marriage is I want to be happy or close, then that motive is the same reason a lot of people get divorced, right? I'm not happy. We're not close. Well, it's not wrong to want to be happy in marriage, and it's definitely not wrong to want to have a great friendship in marriage, but you need a motive bigger than that. Couples need a transcendent purpose for coming together, staying together, and raising children, a purpose that's bigger than them. Marriage is for glorifying God by serving God together. Marriage is to be a visible and lived-out image of the love of the Lord for his people. So, God planned marriage, that's number one, from Genesis 1 and2. He designed it for a certain purpose. And in Genesis two, the third thing we see is that he designed it to work a certain way. There are uh, a certain elements that constitute marriage. And specifically, we're going to look at Genesis 2:24 and 25. Now, and this is so important for us to look at, because marriage, again, is something. And God says what it is. He identifies the elements that make up an actual marriage, starting with the fact, like we said, that you've got a man and a woman. In fact, you've got one man and one woman, and that's important. And there seems to be some kind of order built into this relationship in that man is made first. And in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul draws some significance from that, not in terms of their value, but just in terms of their roles. And uh, one thing we see later in the Genesis passage is that man has a certain responsibility in the relationship for protecting the woman, and when he doesn't, he's held responsible for that. Um, God gives the command to the man, and then when the woman sins and the man follows her, God comes and speaks directly uh, first to to the man. And those are just some general observations, but... Moses gets more specific in verse 24 about the characteristics of this relationship, which are really important for us to consider Uh, because when you enter into a marriage relationship, you're entering into a new, you're making a covenant. And that means you're not married and then you are married. You move from one status to another status. And so you need to understand, what am I covenanting, covenanting to? What kind of relationship have I have I entered into? And Genesis two twenty four is here to help. He says, uh, therefore, or for this reason, in light of what I just talked about, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And so what are the elements there? You've heard this a million times, but leave, cleave, become one flesh, right? So first leave, um, which means what? It means there's a change in relationship status. Like, this was, uh, this was a culture that honored parents. And so this is really radical, because Moses is saying, you know what? When a person gets married, their relationship with their parents fundamentally changes. And now man's primary human relationship should be with his wife. The marriage relationship is the primary human relationship And it wasn't the woman who made all the sacrifices either because he says a man shall leave his father and his mother. And it's really actually shocking that Moses says that because the way that society worked was that the woman, they, you know, obviously for protection, they usually all lived on one big compound. And the grandfather was like the, the man's father was like the patriarch. And uh, when they got married, the woman would come and just join the grandfather, you know, that family that lived on that big compound. And yet Moses is not saying the woman shall leave her father and mother, which is actually what physically happened. He's saying the man shall leave his father and mother, which didn't always, even in Israel, physically happen. But he's saying not, it's not just the woman whose relationship with her parents changes. Even if the way it works out is that you're literally living on the same plot of ground. The man needs to understand that even if he's staying in that same area, his relationship with his parents has fundamentally changed. And uh, leaving here is a very big word. Um, he, he, he's saying, when I get married, my relationship to my parents undergoes serious changes and the way the parents should relate to their children, after marriage, has to change dramatically as well. Um, the word is for leave is the same word that Moses uses later when Joseph flees Potiphar's uh, wife. Um, so it's it's a big big word, and we have to know what it means and what it doesn't mean. And. Uh, you know, we need to think about these kinds of things because it doesn't really matter where you're, you are in the world. One of the biggest problems in marriages is that, like, people don't take seriously this first uh, this verse about God's blueprint for marriage. Like, it's amazing how often people come for counseling and their problems come back to they're not actually submitting to God's blueprint for marriage. And no matter where you go in the world, you will find people who are, who are failing to take seriously this very first statement. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. Like, it's incredible. It's, incre- it's, almost would seem, uh, it's almost would seem funny. It's like, it's not like you even have to go very far. It's like literally one, it's not like you have to read very far in your Bible to get the instruction. And yet, you wouldn't believe how many problems come down to... Um, the marriage relationship isn't the primary human relationship. They haven't, they haven't obeyed this. To obey it, obviously, you have to know what it means. And so what does, it not, what does it mean and what does it not mean? What it does not mean, first, it doesn't mean that you stop honoring your parents when you get married because that's commanded. Um, Proverbs 23, 22 warns against despising your mother when she's old. And... Uh, that's a good those are all good good important warnings. Jesus says if you claim to have a, parent, a relationship with God but you don't care for your parents, you're nullifying the law of God. So leaving your parents doesn't mean breaking all of your relationships with them or bearing no responsibility to them. In fact, sometimes people who hate their parents are are more controlled by their parents than people who who don't hate their parents because they do everything just kind of in opposition to what they think their parents would want. And so they're not even, it's still their parents who are controlling them. They're just, they're just doing the opposite of what they think their parents want. So it doesn't mean you stop honoring your parents. What does it mean then? Leaving means there's not this inordinate dependency relationship with the parents. It means they're not regarding their parents as their final authority figures. It means they're not parent-centered and parent-controlled. It means they're not allowing themselves to become bitter if their parents don't agree with something they do or want to do. It means they're not um, relying on their parents' approval for their security and happiness in life. It means they're not making their parents their main confidants, the ones with whom they share all their secrets. Um, they're not more concerned about fulfilling their parents' desires than fulfilling their mates' desires. It means that, you know what, if what my, the way my parents did things is different than what the Bible says, or the way my parents did things is not commanded by the scripture, and my family would like to do it differently, or my relationship with my spouse, my spouse would like to do it differently, then I don't have to do everything the way that my parents did it just because my parents did it that way. It means uh, they're not constantly blaming their parents for what's happening in their lives. They are developing a peer relationship with their parents. They are accepting the responsibility for making their own decisions and for the life they live. They consider their parents advisors rather than authority figures. They uh, are putting on kindness and compassion and forgiveness towards their parents, even if their parents have sinned against them. They're ready to evaluate their parents' strengths and weaknesses and not overestimate either. It's uh, funny, sometimes when people grow up and they figure out that their parents were sinners, how uh, sometimes they will not show any grace to their parents <laughs> and they become so hardened against them that it ends up controlling them. And it's like, no, <laughs> um, they, they are willing to honestly and respectfully discuss their family backgrounds without becoming defensive or engaging in attacking and demeaning their fam- their, their, their mate's family background. Um, they are determined to make their spouses the most important person in their lives, um, their best friend. They're regarding and treating their mate's parents with the same respect and honor as they do their own parents. So that's that's first, leave. And I'm sure that you could think about, the implications of that even further. And kids, are not just kids, but people as they get married need to recognize this is the kind of, I, this, I'm, I'm entering into a new kind of relationship. This is what I'm committing myself to. I'm committing myself to this spouse, this person as my primary human relationship, and for there to be a fundamental change in my relationship with my, with my parents. And certainly parents, we have to work on that, too, right, as our kids go to get married. Because there's, there's a million different ways we can make it hard for them to do that. And um, sometimes we use uh, guilt or manipulation or all kinds of things to try to force them to not leave. <laughs> and... Uh, that's that's on us as parents. That's that's we need to make it easier for them to obey God's command, not not more difficult. So that's that's first. Any questions or thoughts about that? Well, I'm just talking 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 here, but yeah, some of these things, you know, I'm kind of a laid-back guy, so I've done counseling before where somebody's about to get married, and I'm kind of like, uh, you know, because they're telling me about their relationship with their, I, I'm thinking of one particular situation in particular, in, in specifically, and uh, they're telling me about their relationship with their mom, and I just remember, like, oh, you know, not wanting to be too hard and, and uh, trying to talk about this around the barn, you know, and they're like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then they got married and man, it wasn't like two years, three years later they're sitting there and it's this very issue and a refusal to submit to it that I, 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 I'm, I think even now they're still, still coming back to this. Um, and so uh, we, we, uh, we don't pay attention, we, we don't take God's command seriously to our own peril, <laughs> to our own destruction. So that's first, leave. the next one's obvious, second cleave, and this is about commitment. This was a word they used in the Bible for uh, so, so, solder, how do you say that word, where you put two pieces of metal to get, soldering them together, thank you. Uh, and, I, and it's referring to the permanence of the marriage relationship, so it's saying this is not a temporary relationship, marriage is for life. And um, we know that sins mess things up. And there are situations where divorce is permitted. But that wasn't the original plan. And so when we get married, we need to understand we're making a commitment. I often say, you know, when you get married, you, you need to be thinking. You're not just saying, I love you today. You're saying, I'm going to love you when you're 85 or 90 or 95, whatever it is, and you're not able to get up off the ground and, you know... Uh, You're, maybe you're not thinking as clearly as you, as you used to, I, I'm, this is my commitment, is, is for them. Uh, My, my dad used to say that every married couple should look upon their marriage as if they were on the 10th floor of a building with their mates from which there are no exits when the fire breaks out. So there's only two options then, burn or put out the fire. Um, Or they should look on their marriage as though they were on a small island with their mates where no planes ever come, where there are no boats and no materials to build a boat. This island is thousands of miles away from any landmass, so they can't get away by swimming off the island, and the island is so small they can't avoid the other person. So their choices either continue to be miserable, suicide or homicide, or learn to resolve their difficulties. And uh, that's actually one of the beauties of the marriage relationship, is that it's hard to get out of... So it's like God's putting... What do we usually do with relationships when they're uncomfortable? Is we just like, I'm going to avoid that person. And uh, some of us spend our whole life doing that. You know, we build a friendship with somebody until they get a little bit annoying. Then we go on to another friendship. And then we go on to another friendship and go on to another friendship. And what can happen if that becomes a lifestyle is that... God brings these uncomfortable people into our lives to help us change, but we don't ever change the way that we need to change because we keep moving on to people that are easier for us. And so this is one of the beautiful things about like being part of a church for a long time or uh, being in a marriage relationship is that you you can't just avoid them. You have to either change or deal with the problem or, be miserable, which is not a good option, and that's part of why we make the vows we do, because um, we're making these vows to each other, but to God. And the vows are not just, you know, what I love you today, but who knows about tomorrow, or the vows not. I promise to love you if every if everything goes well. It's a it's a promise to sacrificial love and faithfulness when things are good, when things are bad, forever until um, death do us part. Jay Adams is a biblical counselor. He talks about how couple, couples come for counseling, and they say, you know what? We just don't feel like we love each other anymore. And usually when a couple says that, they think, you know what, counselor? You need to agree with me. We should get a divorce. And the way he would respond, he'd say, what? You don't feel like you love each other anymore? Well, I guess that means we need to get to work. Um, One counselor puts it like this, your marriage is like a good retirement plan. As long as you keep the deposits flowing, the account grows. The marriage develops like compound interest over time. Small investments of love and nurture reap great dividends and relational happiness. No one in their right mind would squander a solid investment account that's been growing through the years to take up a shaky speculative venture. It doesn't make good sense. If the grass is greener on the other side of the fence, you should try watering your own. There's no easy road to authentic relationship. It takes hard work. If you feel the pleasure has gone out of your marriage or the romance or the marriage is not meeting your basic need for encouragement and love, then you have to work at it. There's no other way. The only action that makes sense is to dig in and recommit yourself to your present marriage. So leave, cleave, and then become one flesh. That's third, and that's obviously about union in every way, really. Marriage is one life fully shared. Um, and I'm just going to read this because it's so good, but it says, In the one flesh union of marriage, all the boundaries between a man and woman fall away, and the married couple comes together completely as long as they both shall live. In real terms, two selfish me's start learning to think like one unified us, building a new life together with one total everything, one story, one purpose, one reputation, one bed, one suffering, one budget, one family, so forth. Marriage removes all barriers and replaces them with a comprehensive oneness. It's this all-encompassing unity that sets marriage apart as marriage, more profound than even the most intense friendship. Friends have much in common, but wise friends also have boundaries. They do not share everything. And there's much good in friendship, limited as it is, but what distinguishes marriage is the all-inclusive scope of its claims upon the man and the woman. The two become one flesh, one mortal life, fully shared with total openness, total access, for the rest of their earthly days so that's that's marriage according to God in Genesis 1 and two that's like a, a blueprint and as believers we need to commit ourselves to that to that blueprint if we're going to have um, marriages that glorify him and uh, we really need to commit ourselves to that blueprint um, because man I think this is an opportunity we have um, to Really shine brightly for Christ in this world that 's only becoming more and more confused about marriage and about family. Um, yeah, does anybody have any thoughts or questions as we think about just the genesis of marriage you know uh, each of you probably is going to have opportunity to talk to people who are struggling with marriage, yeah? Who does? Oh, awesome. Well, Kumi and them Will. But you're all going to have an opportunity to talk with different people. And so whether you're married or not married, you want to become kind of an expert in some of these. If we know these basic biblical truths well, we can be a a really big help to people Um, because so many of the problems people have seem complicated, but they often come down to like, fundamental to the fundamentals.